Today's gospel reading is from John 19, 23 to 27. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Thank you for reading, Evelyn. I'm glad I picked a a verse or a passage that was a little bit longer because I couldn't find my notes. I set them down over there, and I was chasing them down while Evie was reading. Um, Do we have any uh, marvelous Miss Maisel fans in here? A few. Okay. Well, it was recommended to me by um, Elder Scott Bowman, and I think I was led to believe that this was a family show. It is not a family show, uh, be forewarned, but it's a really good show. We're about five episodes in, and it's sort of the unexpected TV hit of 2018. And it's a story of this young married woman, mid-20s. She's got two kids. She lives in a high-pressure, no-grace Jewish family in Upper East Side Manhattan. She's beautiful. She's smart. She's hilarious. She lives at a great address, but as most women were in the early 60s, she's utterly dependent upon the men in her life. And we see this in the title, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, or Maisel. And the main character, her first name is Miriam or Midge, and her makeup, her hair, her house, her body is just immaculately groomed all the time. And her expensive apartment It looks like a museum. She has two little kids, but you never see a toy or a sock. There's nothing out of place. So it's completely unrealistic living as someone who lives with kids. Her mother is constantly shaming her about her body, even though she's quite thin, even by the standards of the 1960s, where beauty was almost attainable, that standard by normal humans, and she maintains her thinness, which her mom is always checking in on. She maintains her thinness by going to these really strange calisthenics classes. They're very bizarre. You'll just have to look. If I try to describe them, I would not do them justice. After these classes, she takes out a tape measure and measures herself in all of the critical areas, under the arms, the hips, the thighs, the bust, and she has her friend write down the measurements, which she's apparently been keeping for uh, over a decade, so that she can arrest any sort of expansion in these areas before it gets out of hand, because she thinks maybe I won't notice them, although her mom sure will notice 
And this most memorable uh, scene to me so far is her lying in bed in full makeup. And she's been out for a night on the town with her husband, and she lies down and is waiting for him to go to sleep. And as soon as he does, as soon as she can tell that he's out, she walks to the bathroom, and she begins to take off her makeup and apply this really goopy, thick, cold cream all over her face, and then she rolls her hair, and she puts it up in this, uh, I don't know, sash, what do we call this thing, and goes back to bed and lays down very carefully on her back. The next scene is her waking up about five minutes before her husband so that she can race to the bathroom and reverse that process. And she puts back on her makeup, lets her hair down, makes sure everything is perfect, and goes and lays down beside her husband the moment before he wakes up and looks over at her, thinking, wow, this is what my wife, my trophy wife, looks like all the time. She doesn't even have to work. She's very, very marvelous. And I think that it's all meant to be just preposterous, and all of this attention to detail is meant to be just extraordinarily absurd, that her husband would roll over and expect that that's how she always looks. But she does, at least in the show. And she never seems to have a moment where she doubts this. She falls apart. The pressure gets to her. You see, she is loved She's adored. She is safe so long as her hair is perfect and her makeup is perfect, her wardrobe is well chosen, and her waistline never expands. We're meant to giggle at this. It's preposterous that that would be how she makes her way in the world. The 60s, man, they were just such a strange time. And yet the joke is kind of on us because the past is prologue. Only today, all of these expectations have been democratized, that wealthy Manhattanites and Hollywood starlets where they're constantly in front of us on our phones, on advertisement and movies, and it's not this strange foreign world that just exists out there, but it's one that we think with the right effort we can inhabit, that we can look like these people. We aspire to it. And the expectations for women have only multiplied. As women have moved more fully into the workplace, uh, Miriam is not working at this time, and her life still seems to have not a moment to rest. In our day, you still have to abide by all of those expectations to be married and have children by a certain age to satisfy cultural and family maybe religious expectations. You have to also be the perfect mom who is at every school event volunteering. You know all of your kids' friends' names and their parents and who they're interested in, who they're dating, while maintaining your own social life and hobbies and finding time to go to the gym and have a spiritual life. But in addition to this, now You have to have also a very rewarding and meaningful career that's helping others while you avoid being too emotional 
or too domineering at work because insensitive, insecure men might resent you being there and resent the competition. And you have to be careful. I'm talking here to women primarily. You have to be careful what you wear because if you wear something that's a little bit too suggestive or revealing, then you provoke sexual aggression from these very same insecure men. And whatever you do, don't age. Don't get old. Don't look like you're getting old. If you start to notice any wrinkles whatsoever, if your skin starts to sag, there's a whole aisle of anti-aging ointments and cream that you can take out a home loan to afford that you can apply because you've got to stop that right away. Do not age. Well, obviously, I'm talking primarily to females, to women, to girls, actually. But we men, we want to look okay as well. We want to look great. Actually, we want to look immortal, like an Avenger, like Thor. That's what we aspire to, the Chris Hemsworth uh, physique and hair. It's not just the six-pack abs anymore, but it's the eight-pack. You've got to have the eight-pack of abs. You've got to have a full head of hair and no back hair. Your facial area has to be at the perpetual five o'clock shadow, and you have to have just the right amount of peach fuzz on your chest. Not hair, mind you, but just peach fuzz. And everything else is perfectly clean and shaved or meant to look as if you don't have any hair, while also being witty and romantic and thoughtful and tender and good with kids. This is the person that men are to aspire to. So I don't want to make this sermon just about female body image, because men more and more are inflicted with this perfection ideal that we have to live up to. But I want to say this particularly to ladies, girls, females, women, that you can't do all of that. Hear me, you cannot do all of this. You cannot have all of that in the way that we are meant to expect to have it. Some of what is needed in this conversation is a, is a healthy, I would say a holy self-compassion that you have permission to say to yourself that I cannot attain that life. No matter how many hours are in the day, no matter how hard I try, that life is impossible. It is unattainable. That level of career success, that life, that body, while maintaining all of those other expectations, is not realistic. And it's not, friends, a path to wholeness. It's not a path to wellness. It's a path instead of comparison and compartmentalization and competition. It's a recipe for self-loathing. It's a recipe for self-harm. It's a recipe for us considering our bodies to be our enemy. And that we develop this weird relationship with it. We purge it. We punish it. We change it. We mold it. We make it lovely so that we will be lovely. And that lie needs to die. 
because it is a lie. And I think that Mrs. Maisel, the show, holds up this mirror to our culture, and we should too, to speak the truth about how irrational this all is and how medieval it all is, especially towards women and especially towards girls as the father of a 14-year-old girl. To be able to develop over time, mind you, this won't be solved right now, but what we're doing is having a series on getting well, being well, and it takes time and it takes work. It takes embodied effort to counteract these lies, to be able to develop what poet Fleur Adcock calls a holy indifference to mirrors, a holy indifference to mirrors. She says that in her life, learning to grow old with all that that entailed for her body and for her beauty and failing to live up over time to the standards that were placed upon her, learning to do that well involved finding and contemplating a greater beauty, a different mirror to look into. And we read two passages this morning that sort of bookend a story for us that I believe is more beautiful, that I, I believe gives us a better mirror to assess ourselves by. More beautiful than the one that the entertainment and celebrity culture industry is telling us where we're to alternatively hate our bodies and worship them at the same time. Hate your body because it definitely falls short and yet make the attainment of that impossible body your reason for being and the core of your identity that if you don't get it, you remain unhappy and you'll buy stuff. Hate and worship your body. And this story is also more beautiful, I think, than the story we often get from Christian culture that says, be suspicious of your body. And this is what we talked about last week, if you're wondering kind of the context of what I'm saying here. But so much of our Christian publishing industry and the big wigs that tell us what we're to be as Christians tell us, or at least imply, the subtext is to be suspicious of your body. Don't trust it, fear it. Cover it by all means, especially women, and ultimately abandon it because the point of spirituality is that Jesus comes to rescue us from our body and take us off spiritually to heaven. And that's the story that you're supposed to use to fight against these images that tell you you're not enough and you never will be. Instead, I think what these passages tell us, what the Bible tells us, is a story that leads to a self-compassion because of God's holy compassion toward us. And we read this passage a lot, the Genesis passage, because it's foundational. It's the problem that the rest of the Bible is seeking to solve and to provide an answer for. Here is what is wrong with the world, and here's why you are unhappy. Because like this pair, you have resisted and walked away from God's compassionate care and chosen a different life. And what we see is this idyllic community where there's intimacy and flourishing and there's wholeness that is lost out of a choice that brings the opposite of all of those things. It brings hiddenness. 
It brings division between spouses. It brings division internally. And it brings and grows and breeds this self-protectionism because now we have to protect ourselves. We don't have God to do it for us. And I think that what the Bible is saying is not just depicting this one choice whereby sin entered into the world, but it is depicting a choice that we make every day. That we make this choice and that that's what leads to our existential emptiness. Because what we're choosing and what Genesis says was chosen is we're making a choice that looks like self-determination. It looks like autonomy and it looks like freedom. By giving up the direction of God, we can be free. We can have self-determination. But in giving that up, we're also giving up, friends, the, the care and the compassion and the protection of God. And we're not exchanging this, exchanging the determination of God to live independent, but we're just giving ourselves over to another set of gods, another tribe that's going to determine what is right, other gods, other norms, other expectations, other regimes that are going to tell us this is how you are to live. And we just exchange another community, one that is idyllic and perfect and full of wholeness for one that leads to division. And the primary way, one of the primary ways that we survive in this new world is with our bodies. We live in a physical place. We are material creatures. And some of us, because of genetics, some of us because we just try harder when we go to the gym, some of us because we have more time, perform and conform better in those circumstances. Our bodies conform closer to the norm, at least for a time, right? At least for a season. Because no matter how good your genes are, you're going to decline against the norms of societal beauty. You will. And so like Adam and Eve, we're all scared. We're all worried that someone is going to say, aha, I see. I see what's behind this facade. I see what's behind this beautiful appearance. We're all scared. I hope I'm not projecting because I'm just telling you what I feel. I'm scared. I feel naked all the time. I feel like being seen is being rejected, that being exposed and transparent is to be unsafe. And part of that is because we know that we don't now and never will measure up to this impossible image that we have for beauty in our world, or that the standards will change and we will no longer. Have you seen uh, older film, older TV? The standards are completely different. The, the male icon 30 years ago was Burt Reynolds. Have you seen how hairy that guy is? I mean, he is a human ape. And he was on the cover of every magazine, the most beautiful person in the world, most beautiful man. He would not be today. So what is our approach? 
response. We run, we hide, we cover, we cower, just like we're told that our spiritual parents did. And we experience this physio-spiritual break where we divide our lives. We differentiate ourselves from our bodies. They're no longer us, but they're a container. They're something other than us. And as they accumulate things, if they accumulate weight, that becomes sort of like a tumor that we have to excise. We have to get it out because it is corrupting us. It is making us unclean. We, and this is the trick, or I guess the trap. You see, we want to be adored for our bodies, and yet we resent being measured by them. We long to have people say how beautiful, how handsome, how wonderful we look, and yet we resent it. Yet we say, no, that is not appropriate. I'm much more complex. I'm much more than one-dimensional. And the fig leaves, friends, are the way that we defend against that. The fig leaves that we wear, that we saw, that Adam and Eve put on, these are metaphorical for all of the ways that we hide our shame and hide our nakedness, not just physically, all the ways that we know that we are seen and found to be inadequate. The radical idea of Christianity is that God comes not with impossible standards for you to meet and says, measure up. The radical idea of Christianity is is that God comes not seeking to dominate you, not seeking dominance over his children, not seeking to control us, but to enter into relationship with us, to enter into intimacy with us as we are in our bodies, and to rescue us not only from all of the other regimes that are oppressive and harmful, but to rescue us oftentimes from ourselves and from our internal divisions. Because he comes and he sees us with all of our silly little fig leaves that we wear. But he doesn't come to shame us. He doesn't come to berate us. But he comes with what may be one of the most beautiful sentences in the Bible. Where are you? Where are you? That that's God's approach to you. Son, daughter, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? Of course, knowing the answer. But in this very sad story, we see this inbreaking of the possibility of joy, the possibility that this situation doesn't have to exist forevermore. Because we want to be seen. Ultimately, we want to be exposed and loved. We want to be naked and unashamed because that's how we were made. But the challenge is that we were also made not to find the solution to that quandary in anything other than God's gaze and His approval and His enduring love. We were made to not be satisfied with anything less than that. Anything that doesn't give us that. 
And so we pursue it, but it's to our own peril because it divides us, it exhausts us, and we'll never find rest. And we're just simply, under the name of self-determination and freedom and autonomy, just adopting a different set of standards that we are never going to meet. And so God comes not with standards. He comes not with a set of rules that if you obey, then you will be loved. But He comes to love us. We were created for His love. And He comes, in fact, to cover us. We see the other sort of bookend to this story as I conclude. The story that opened in this Genesis reading, we saw the gospel, read the gospel reading, where we see God coming just as God did in the garden. Where are you? Where Jesus comes and He takes on our flesh. He takes on our body and He comes to humanity and says, friends, where are you? Let me love you. Let me be for you everything that you're looking for in all of these silly ways that you seek to cover yourself. He comes not demanding sacrifice, you see, but he comes bringing it. He comes as it. He comes as the sacrifice. And we read that approaching the cross, Jesus comes and what what does it say they did to him first? They divided up his garments. Does that, have you ever considered what that means? It means that they stripped him naked. They took all of his clothes away. And so when Jesus was nailed to the cross, it was not just an execution, but it was a shameful event. And this is why in Hebrews it talks about Jesus despising the shame of the cross because the cross was a form of execution, of course, but it was one of the most brutal, torturous, and shameful executions that had been yet been imagined. And it was reserved for only the lowest of the low, the putrid of humanity. Only the insurrectionists were killed in this way. And what Rome was saying is that we will kill you, but first we will shame you. We will shame you before all of your family by stripping you naked. And so Jesus comes as the sacrifice. He comes as God, saying, where are you? Let me be joy for you. Let me be covering for you. And he's stripped naked and put on the cross as who looks on? Women, his mom. And how shaming that would be. I mean, I just shiver when I think about that. What is being depicted there? In Genesis, we see the story of nakedness that leads to shame and an act of radical love whereby God comes not to increase the shame, but He pursues with compassion. And He doesn't come saying, take off those stupid fig leaves right now. Look what you've done. You wanted to be exposed. I'll show you exposure. No, he makes them animal skins. He makes them a covering that's more lasting, that is physical. And then later in the story, he takes on our bodies. He takes on our nakedness, and he takes on all of our shame, and he absorbs all of the reason 
for shame in this world, and he subverts all of those regimes that want to assert dominance over you. All of the ways that the world tells you to purge, to genuflect, to follow the rules, to follow the tribe, to make yourself beautiful. He comes and absorbs all of that. He says, you are made beautiful. You are already beautiful to me. Not just part of you, but all of you in your body. You're beautiful physically. So what if that could become our mirror? What if that was the reflection that you looked in individually every day and throughout the day? And what would it be like if that was our mirror for a church? Who would we be soft and tender to? Who would we embrace because of shame in their lives, because they are fearful of the church being one more institution to shame them? What if that could be your mirror? Well, that's what we're going to talk about next week. So I hope you'll come back. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would develop over time with your help and only by your help a holy indifference to mirrors, that we would be able to see ourselves more and more as you see us and not just to hope that one day you will receive our spirit and that our spirit can be clean, but that you love our bodies and that matter matters to you. And I pray that that would become more real to us, particularly as we come to this table, as we feed upon grace in the form of matter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.